As we come to the Word of God this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask as we come before your holy, inspired Word that you would please give us a heart of humility, give us mind of understanding, and may we have wills and hearts that long to obey. We want to do what you have called us to do, and so we pray for your spirit to do his work in each one of our hearts, that we might live faithfully before you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last week, we looked at the importance of God's word. If you were with us, we saw that all that God's word says is what we are to obey, that the word of God stands over us as our authority. Why is that? Because it's the word of the king. It's the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, a title that indicates Christ's authority over us, and it's his word that then rules over us. And so we looked at the need to believe what the Bible says about itself and to uh, obey all that it says in each area of our lives. Today, we're going to consider the ramifications of that truth, particularly in the area of sexuality. What does the Bible say about how we are to order our minds, our bodies, and our lives sexually? Now, why this issue at this time? Why are we here at Foothill Bible Church on January 16th, 2022, addressing this issue? Well, one way to answer that is that because this is an area of God's word and God's revealed truth that is most under attack right now in our world and particularly in the Western world. Satan, the enemy of God, has been inspiring Western nations to rebel against the Lord in numerous ways, but one of the most destructive is to attack God's design for humanity in terms of sexuality. For decades, our nation has celebrated the repudiation of God's standards. Everywhere, everything from no-fault divorce, which empowered people to easily break the covenant of marriage, the proliferation of pornography that has caused immorality to be piped into every home and now into virtually every pocket, the mantra of safe sex that encourages people, even young people, to engage in immorality. Homosexuality is celebrated as a legitimate expression of sexuality, and now, you know, major institutions of education, government, and entertainment all heartily affirm the transgender movement. Every day, new headlines are being made on these fronts. But the further erosion of God's standard for sexuality was seen just nine days ago across our northern border, as was referenced in our brother Bernie's prayer in the email that I sent out on January 7th. A new law went into effect in Canada, which on its face simply says that it outlaws conversion therapy. But the question is, what do they mean by conversion therapy? Quoting the law, it says, conversion therapy means a practice, treatment, or service designed to do a number of things. To change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, 
or to change a person's gender identity to cisgender, which simply means their gender at birth, to to change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, or to repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, or to repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity, or lastly, to repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. Now, according to the current uh, secular worldview that dominates Western society, all of this makes sense. But what this essentially does is to go directly against God's Word in the area of sexuality. This statute outlaws the telling of any person that they should live according to God's standard, that homosexuality is not God's will for any person, that the ideology of transgenderism is not right nor helpful or healthy for any individual. This law requires full affirmation of one's, one's chosen gender identity. And this law comes with some teeth. If you advertise any therapy, quote-unquote, that advocates these things, then there's a prison time up to two years. If you're actually found teaching these things, there's prison time up to five years. And so this new law in our neighboring country of Canada is written so broadly that it, it poses serious threat to all areas of life. And so in many ways, it, this will potentially outlaw the preaching of the gospel in Canada if it's really carried out. Oh, sure, there'll be people that will call others to trust in Jesus, that they will say, hey, you need to believe in Jesus, but they're not going to touch these areas. They're going to claim to preach the gospel, but not actually transgress the law as written. Because the issue at point is that the Bible calls us to repent of our sin, to turn away from all that uh, disobeys God's Word, and to walk in alignment with His Word. That is what we are called to do as the church, as believers in the Scriptures. And therefore, in order to preach Truly, the truth of God, we must call people to turn from their sin. What we're seeing, now that you might say, oh, this is in Canada. Well, friends, this is not far away. In fact, there's already been a conversion therapy ban of sorts here in California, not to the broad extent that this one is written, but in 2012, there was one that was passed here in California. These sorts of laws are coming our way. And we need to recognize them for what they are and realize where we need to stand as God's people. What we're seeing here is the playing out of Romans chapter 1. And I invite you to turn there as we begin our time here together. Romans chapter 1. Pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 1116. 1116. Romans chapter 1. Paul describes... What happens when humanity rejects God's standard, when they reject the Lord Himself, 
and they begin to follow after their own passions and desires. And the downgrade is pretty clear. Follow along as I read, beginning Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the moral de degeneracy of humanity. And notice that God, in His judgment, continues to give them up, give them over to these passions. Therefore, the best we can conclude is that what we see going on in our society and others is that this is God's judgment upon us. That is, we as a nation continue to pursue unrighteousness. God continues to give us up to more and more evil. And we not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. And again, we see this just across our northern border as well. And so today, a number of pastors in Canada recognizing this law coming into effect said, we're going to preach on what the Bible says on these matters right after this law comes into an effect. And so they chose today, January 16th, as the day that they would preach on that to, sh to show that they would not be silenced as they seek to obey God rather than man. And so they asked others in the U.S. and around the world to be able to stand with them. And so I, along with other pastors, happily are doing so. No matter how unpopular the truth is, we will always proclaim what God's Word says because as we said last week, this Word stands as authority over us. 
We can't shape it. We don't stand over it to make it say what we want it to say. We stand under it and submit our lives to it. And this is the word of the king. But as we come and and we talk about these issues of sexuality, things that are so charged in our society today, we must speak about these things with the right attitudes. And I just briefly want to mention four that we need to consider this morning. The first is humility. First is humility. None of us are perfect. None of us are absolutely perfectly holy that have, have no records in our past of past sin. And so we recognize as we address these issues of sin that, yes, maybe we haven't uh, sinned in specific areas that may be mentioned that others have, but we recognize with humility that all of us have a past. All of us are sinners before God's standard of holiness. And so we address these issues with humility. We need to address them, secondly, with compassion. With compassion. Again, we may not be tempted to fall in line and and to to sin in, in certain ways sexually that our society may be or others might be tempted to do. But friends, we all know the blinding power of sin. We know that in our own lives, sin deceives. Sin causes us to think that something is good when it's not. And we can be so convinced of it. And so as we consider these issues, we need to look not down our nose in, in, in anger and hatred, but with compassion upon those who might claim these sexually deviant lifestyles. It's been said that these LGBTQ individuals are not the enemy, but the mission field. And friends, we need to have compassion on those who are so blinded by sin. The third attitude we need to have is focus. We're not here to get pulled into the political debates, get pulled into the sociological debates. We simply root our argument and our plea in the Scriptures, in the Word of God. We're here as Christians to hear from Christ in His Word, and we need to keep our focus there. And fourthly, our fourth attitude is conviction. Conviction. We can't back down what the Word says. We must proclaim this Word because it's not our own Word. We're not making this up. We're not just saying what we want to say or we want people to hear. We are saying what God has said. Again, Jesus is King. He's Lord of heaven and earth, and we're to be His heralds, His messengers, simply holding to the conviction of His Word. And so it's with Christ that we stand. And so with all of that as introduction, I want us to direct the rest of our time to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And so I invite you to turn there, one book to the right, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in this chapter, the Apostle Paul gives us a clear explanation of the purpose of sex and sexuality. And it makes sense that it would be in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, that this issue of sexuality and sex would come up. Because you see, Corinth in the ancient world was essentially known as Sin City. It was known of the perversions and deviancy that was found there in Corinth. They were known for their vices. In the city of Corinth, there stood a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. She's the goddess of love, and so in that worship of that goddess, there was an abundance of temple prostitutes that were there within the temple, and so as people came to worship, it involved intercourse with these prostitutes. 
On top of that, it was a major uh, international city. It stood as a port city that stood between Italy and, and, and Asia, and so people passed through this all the time, spreading its perversion for all who came through, and, and so many would partake in this pr- promiscuity that was found within the city. In fact, the city was so known for its, its sin that uh, they invented a new word that meant to Corinthianize, which meant that someone or a city was following in the footsteps of, of Corinth, that they were following the same immoral degeneracy. And so it's into this context that a church that he founded, he went there and spent a year and a half, preached the gospel, established a church there in this sin city. But since his time there, things have come up, and so he writes this letter to address a number of things that have arisen in the church. And there's a number of crazy things that have been taking place. In our passage today, we're going to see that there's some men who were visiting prostitutes on a regular basis, and they were rationalizing their sin, believing that there was a way for them to claim to be followers of Jesus and yet to partake in this sin. They had come up with certain rationalizations that assuaged their consciences to enable them to continue in this this sin. Seems pretty amazing, huh? How could you rationalize such sin as visiting prostitutes? And yet, the ability to rationalize sin shouldn't surprise us, should it? We can find ways to rationalize our own sin. We can do the very same thing. We, we like to excuse our behavior. We like to make ourselves not feel so guilty, and so we look to other people and say, oh, it's not as bad as that person or that person. Well, at least I'm not doing that. It's not that bad. And so as we read of the Corinthians' excuses, let us not think ourselves morally superior to them, but recognize that we can be tend to do the same thing. With that as background, I want us to read our passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Follow along as I read. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now we're going to organize our thoughts this morning from this passage around three excuses that the Corinthians make and that Paul debunks. These excuses or rationalizations or come through in the text as slogans. He, Paul essentially 
references a slogan that they might make, and then he debunks it. Now, some of, these trans, some of our translations call out those slogans pretty clearly by putting quotation marks around them, and some don't. The ESV, for example, has the first line, you'll notice, of verse 12 with parentheses, or uh, sorry, quotation marks around them, all things are lawful for me, thereby designating by the translators that they believe this is a slogan that the Corinthians would say to themselves that Paul was repeating, therefore to then counter. Now, the, trans, the version, the New American Standard doesn't have those quotation marks, and that's okay. There's, there's no quotation marks in the Greek language, and so this is seeking to understand in interpretation what is what is this phrase doing? Is this really something that Paul is saying or is this something that he's repeating of the Corinthians? Now, I believe that there are three such groupings of uh, these slogans here in this text, and that's going to organize our thoughts for us this morning, found in verse 12, verse 13, and verse 18. And I'll just explain those as we go ahead. And so as we look at these three different rationalizations from them and Paul's message with them, we're going to see three lessons for living biblically faithful in this area of sexuality. We want to live biblically in the area of sexuality, and this text here is going to help us do that by giving us three lessons. I'm indebted to the author, Denny Burke, and his book, What is the Meaning of Sex?, I would, I would recommend that book to you, What is the Meaning of Sex by Denny Burke, and his exposition of this passage was helpful for me. And so the first lesson that we're going to see here in verse 12 is that your Christian liberty has limits. Your Christian liberty has limits. Verse 12 contains a slogan of these Corinthians that's repeated twice, you may have noticed. They would say, all things are lawful for me. And this is a way for them to express their Christian liberty. And no doubt, coming off of Paul's teaching of them, they knew that they were no longer bound by the Old Testament law. They knew that there was freedom in Christ, that there was Christian liberty. And so they were claiming to live out that Christian liberty by visiting prostitutes. But Paul, in his teaching, no doubt, taught them that this freedom should not lead them to sin. Consider Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, where to a different church he says, For you were not called to freedom, brothers, only you, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Paul's exhortation to the Galatians was that they weren't to use their freedom to serve themselves, but they used their freedom to serve others. And in a similar vein, here in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, he says, oh, you say all things are lawful for me? He says, but not all things are helpful. This word helpful or profitable is to put a limit on their freedom, to recognize, yes, there is freedom in Christ, but you can't just do any and everything. There are certain things that are profitable, that are helpful. This word translated helpful means advantageous, or that which gives or confers a benefit. And in the other context this word is used in this book, it relates not only, get this, to personal benefit, but refers to the benefit to other people. In other words, 
Paul's saying, all things may be lawful for you, but not all things are helpful to others. Not all things are profitable to the people around you. You can't just do whatever you want. You have to consider what is beneficial and profitable to the people around you. You need to be constrained by love. Christian liberty, liberty is limited by love. And so we ask, is this action that I'm considering to do profitable, helpful, advantageous for others in the church? And in this case, obviously, visiting prostitutes does not, as Paul's arguing. But let me just say this, in the area of sexuality, even within the marriage bed between a husband and a wife, there are many things that are not prohibited by Scripture. There's great freedom that couples can have as they express their love, but it must be governed by love for one another. Just because it's lawful doesn't mean we should do it. Our Christian liberty is limited by love, Paul says. But he repeats the slogan again. All things are lawful, but look how he constrains it again. But I will not be dominated by anything. Paul says, although there may be great Christian freedom, but that does not mean that we should be enslaved by anything. Uh, freedom in Christ shouldn't mean that we put ourselves into a new kind of slavery. Again, there are many things that Christians are allowed to do, but just because we're allowed to do it doesn't mean we pursue them with such abandon and become enslaved by them. We know this, right? There are so many things that are out there that are technically okay, right? The, the great question, am I allowed to do this? Yes, technically and scripturally, you're allowed to partake in this activity, but we need to be watching our hearts that we do not become enslaved in them. Consider things such as eating, social media, video games, things that aren't wrong in and of themselves, but we can easily become enslaved to them. Today, we use the psychological term addictions to describe this enslavement. And in the context here, he's talking about sexual passions and desires, and these desires are strong within us, and therefore they're ripe for us to become enslaved by them. So Paul says that even though we're free to do many things, we should not be dominated or mastered or ruled by anything. The implication, friends, is that we should only be ruled by Christ. In other words, Christian liberty is limited by love and the lordship of Christ. Christ alone is Lord. We are not to be dominated or ruled by anything else, enslaved to anything else. We are slaves to Christ. So the first lesson Paul gives us here in 1 Corinthians 6 is that our Christian liberty is limited by love for others and the lordship of Christ. And so this means that in evaluating our sexuality and our sexual activity, we must ask the questions, am I harming others with this? But not only the harm question, but am I doing good and showing love to others with this? Am I blessing others? And also, am I enslaved to my sexual passions and desires? But the second lesson I want us to see in verses 13 through the first part of 18, is that your physical body has significance. Your physical body has significance. Verse 13 introduces another slogan by the Corinthians to excuse their sexual sin. I believe that the quotation marks 
should be, should be broader, actually, than the ESV even designates here. I believe the whole slogan that the Corinthians would say to justify their sin is this. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The Corinthians' excuse here was twofold. One is that they argued that the biological purpose of the body justified its use. Just as the stomach is for food and food for the stomach, it was observable that biologically the food, food was designed for the stomach and therefore we can use our stomachs for food. So they would say our sexual organs are designed for sexual activity and therefore if we have the biology and the anatomy, we should just use it. It's, it's there. It's, it's designed that way. It's to function that way. So it must be right to use it, they reasoned. But not only did they argue that, but the, error, the second part of their error, notice where they say God will destroy both one and the other. They basically say, listen, our, our bodies are going to be destroyed in the end anyway. Just like the, the food and stomach and all that's going to go away, our bodies are, are, are going to be destroyed. They're going back to dust. And so, therefore, if God was going to return the body to dust, then our bodies have ultimately no moral significance. If it's all going to burn in the end, we can use it however we want, they're saying. Well, Paul addresses the first part of their error in the second half of verse 13. Look at it. He says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, notice he doesn't deny the biological reality that they were saying that, this, that the body is destined or is designed for sex, but he's saying that it points even to a greater purpose. So yes, there might be, be a purpose that our bodies are designed for intercourse, but that is a, 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 a short-sighted goal and purpose. There's even a greater purpose that our bodies were designed for. Our bodies were designed for the Lord. We're designed to give glory to God. That's ultimately why we were created. All of us was, was created. Notice it's not just our souls. It's not just the immaterial part of us that is, that is the Lord's. It says the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Paul says our bodies are not intended for sexual immorality. This is the word porneia from which we get the word pornography. The Bible uses this term to describe all describe all sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. So Paul says, our bodies were not designed for deviant sexual behavior, but designed strictly for the Lord ultimately. Created to glorify God. And sexually, that means within the confines of marriage governed by love. Our bodies are for the Lord. But more than that, our bodies must be factored into the moral equation because God, friends, has a high view of the body, not a low one. And this is not only seen in creation, but it's also seen in the resurrection. Look at verse 14 with me. It says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. In other words, the Corinthians argue, listen, this is all going to burn up in the end. Our bodies are going to dust. Therefore, it doesn't matter how I use my physical body. I can use it however I want. And Paul says, not so fast. 
Your body, yes, might be going to dust, but there's a, there's a, that's not the end of the story. There's more to the story because Jesus rose from the dead. He's saying the, the resurrection has implications. You can't ignore the fact that, that Jesus died and rose again, and therefore he's going to raise our bodies too. The end of the story with your body is living eternally. Therefore, don't discount the body. And friends, this is a needed message in our day. Christianity has the highest view of our human bodies of any worldview. And you might say, the highest view? We view our bodies highly? I thought Christians looked down their noses on, you know, their, their puritanical views of sex and all of this, that they don't really, you know, follow your bodies. They kind of snuff it out. And, and in some ways, Christians have taught that. They've taught, you know, the, the mind or, or soul is good and the body is bad, and so don't obey your bodily desires and just pray and worship Jesus. And so in some ways, in some branch of Christianity, that has been taught wrongly. But if we look, go back to the Scriptures. The Scriptures teach an extremely high view of our bodies. We know that God personally created human bodies, Genesis chapter 1. He made us in His image. And He didn't just make souls in His image. He made humans in His image. And that includes body and soul. And on top of that, when God came to rescue humanity, he came taking on body and soul. The incarnation, what we just celebrated at Christmas, right? Jesus became flesh. And in that world, the platonic world that taught that the, the, the immaterial was good and the, and the physical was bad, the, 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 the philosophy of the day was saying they were trying to escape the body. They were trying to get out of this physical mess and no God would so defile themselves as to get involved with physical matter. And that's exactly what the living God did. He came and took on flesh, showing that his creation of bodies was significant. But more than that, yes, his body was killed, but that wasn't the end of the story. His body was raised again and was perfected into this resurrected state. And now the promise for all believers is that we will one day be resurrected as well. Our bodies, in other words, friends, are not temporary. These are not one-time use products to be thrown away once we're done. Our bodies will be redeemed and glorified. In the utopia of the new heavens and the new earth, is not just souls floating around in clouds. It is an embodied state. We will walk around on the new earth in resurrected, glorified bodies. In other words, perfection includes physical bodies. This is the perfection that God designed, that God intends for each one of us. We cannot discount our bodies. Our bodies have meaning now, and they have meaning in the future. And this means that our bodies are significant moral players that we must pay attention to. They tell us something. Our bodies, our biology, our anatomy tell us something about how we're to live in the here and now and how we will live in eternity. Paul says, because of the resurrection, we do not discount the body. Because of the resurrection, we must have a high view of the body. But friends, in our world today, the moral argumentation employed to justify people's sexual choices actually demeans the very bodies that they have. 
The sexual lifestyles that are marketed today are not showing a high view of the body, but a very low view, a dehumanizing view. And I'm indebted to author Nancy Piercy for this, her her great book, uh, Love Thy Body, which I recommend and can be checked out from our church library, Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy, which sounds like a funny title. Why should I love my body? But it's pointing out this very reality that the Christian worldview enables us to see the value and the meaning that is in our physical bodies. In homosexuality, consider this. Biology is ignored. Biology is, is ignored. The anatomy of humanity, we know, is clear. That there are two sexes and that those sexes are complementary to one another. Biology tells us that procreation only happens through the union of a man and a woman. We are a reproducing species, and it requires a male and a female. But homosexuality says that a person's body should be ignored, should be discounted and silenced for telling them what kind of sexual life they should live. Therefore, homosexuality has a demeaning, belittling view of the body. And transgenderism only takes this ideology to the extreme, right? This worldview fully rips people apart. The immaterial and the material are, are, are ripped apart. It tears their consciousness from their bodies, saying that their immaterial self is real and, and meaningful, but that their bodies are a mistake and meaningless, and that their bodies essentially function as a prison of sorts, something to be cast off or changed or mutilated. And because of this, individuals who adopt the transgender lifestyle don't live with wholeness. They don't live in a wholeness between body and soul. They live with this discontinuity, this dissonance between who they are and what they carry around with them every day. Again, another reason to have compassion upon them. They're so torn by this ideology that it, it torments them. And even those who go through surgery to try to bring alignment, as they call it, between the inside and the outside, do not report any higher levels of happiness or satisfaction. And that the issues, the psychological and emotional issues that were there before, often are there afterward. Because to reject God's design does not bring any great peace or happiness. Nancy Piercy, the author of the book Love Thy Body, tells of a 14-year-old girl who when she was 11, decided to try living as a boy. She did this, and then three years later, she switched back to living consistent with her biological sex. And she said that the turning point for her was when she realized that she could love her body. When she realized that this physical body that she had was meaningful and significant, and she could adopt it and enjoy what God had given her. The secular worldview, driven by materialism, blind materialism of evolution, tells us that our bodies are irrelevant and not part of our authentic self. And therefore, it's extremely dehumanizing. The Christian worldview tells us, rather, that our bodies do have meaning. They're valuable. They're significant. They have dignity. Our bodies, therefore, must factor into the moral equation. We don't idolize our bodies. 
but we recognize the dignity that God has endowed them with. And so we also need to see the significance of the resurrection. And the resurrection has implications for us today to recognize that the body is a significant moral player and we need to pay attention to it. Verses 15 through the first part of 18, Paul goes on to reason that the body can, one of the reasons that the body cannot be ignored when evaluating the morality of sexual activity is because our bodies are members of Christ. Look at verse 15. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. We as Christians are members of Christ's body and therefore when we participate in sexual immorality, we bring Christ into that sin. And Paul is saying, should we do this? Should we involve our, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ in these kinds of sins? And he says, never. The Greek, megenetai, it's the strongest negative in the Greek language. Uh, the King James translates it, God forbid. It's not just our souls who, that are united to Jesus. Our bodies are involved as well. And so when a Christian goes to bed with a prostitute, it joins a member of Christ's body to that prostitute. Verse 16, he uses Genesis to back up his argument. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it, as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. And so he emphasized the point that when a man and a woman engage in intercourse, there's a union that's taking place between their bodies. And even though the context of this verse is the marriage of Adam and Eve, the principle is that the, that the, the sex act which consummates a marriage brings about the one flesh relationship, whether the individuals are married or not. Which is why sexual immorality, porneia, is so sinful. And so, because Christians are united to Christ in body and spirit, notice the end of verse, of verse 17, rather, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. There's the unity with Christ that we have, and therefore, look, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from porneia. We should run away from it. It's been said that there are sins that you can fight, but the sin of sexual immorality we need to flee from. It's not a sin that we stand and fight. It's a sin that we run from. So friends, as a church, Sfoto Bible Church, a community of covenanted believers together seeking to live under the Lordship of Christ, we in our lives must obey this command. We can look to the outside world and say, oh, look at all the sexual morality that's, that's running rampant through our society. Friends, we need to humbly look at our own lives and see where is sexual immorality in our lives and homes. Where do we need to flee from this sin? Jesus calls all of us to walk in holiness and purity calls all of us to flee sexual immorality, whether you're 16 or 60. We must flee. Not give an occasion for sin. That includes sins of the mind. Not allowing 
fantasies and the reading of erotic literature or other media to fill our minds with images, stories, activities. We can't allow our minds to drift and to wander into sexual immorality. We must flee from sins of the eyes. Again, pornography is what is rampant throughout our society and can be found in just about every device, all in our pockets. Pornography is images, videos produced with the intention to arouse. There are things that do not market themselves as pornography per se, but they are intended to arouse. And so let us not be foolish. Let us not rationalize our sin by giving into this soft porn or these things that aren't officially pornography, but we know that it's causing us to sin. It's causing us to lust with our minds. If it arouses you, flee. Friends, we must evaluate our entertainment choices. There's no standard that this movie's good, this movie's bad. We have, to, we have to be guided by the Spirit that we might live holy lives. But let your conscience be pricked. Don't give any allowance for these sins to take place in your, in your mind, in your heart, in your homes. And we must flee sins of the body. Things that go against God's design of sexual fulfillment that is found within the covenant of marriage. That includes self-stimulation. It includes adultery. It includes fornication. Homosexuality. Friends, these things must not be named among us. We must flee from them in the name of Christ. All these sins transgress God's law and fall short of God's design, and therefore we must flee, run far away from them. So we've seen first that Christian liberty has limits. Secondly, our bodies have significance. And thirdly, your sexuality has a purpose. Your sexuality has a purpose. Paul has already hinted towards this and will, is coming at it again for a climactic finish. Verse 18 is not designated in other translations as a slogan, but I believe it is. The second part of verse 18, it says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The word other there, every other sin a person commits, that other is not found in the Greek. And I don't believe can be justified for inclusion. And so I believe that that first phrase is used as one of their slogans. They would say, every other, or every sin a person commits is outside the body. You know, when we sin, it's outside. It, 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 it has to do with the body alone. And Paul says, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. He says, no, 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 you can't discount the body. You can't say the body is not an insignificant player. When you commit sexual immorality, there is a sin against their own body. You see, we're created as unities of bodies and souls. 
We can't separate the two and say the body does this, but the soul doesn't do that. It's all together. And included in that, verse 19, he says that, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? He says, Christians, don't you realize that because you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, in essence, your body is holy ground. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the place where you worship. And so you do not want to defile that temple by bringing your body into transgressive acts. But fundamentally, friends, whatever you do with your bodies, we need to recognize that we do not belong to ourselves. We do not follow, just follow our bodily urges or our fleshly desires. We are not our own. We don't belong to us. You belong to Jesus Christ. Your body belongs to Jesus Christ. You are to use your body for instruments of righteousness. You don't get to decide what you do or decide what is right and wrong. You're not to follow your heart and your lust. You're to follow Christ because you were bought with the price, Paul says. You are not your own for you were bought with a price. What price was that? The greatest price of all. First Peter chapter 1 says you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Friends, Jesus bought you. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Jesus bought you with his blood. Therefore, serve him with your sexuality. Jesus bought you, so offer the members of your body as instruments of righteousness, not instruments of sin. The purpose of our sexuality is not our personal fulfillment. Paul says we are to glorify God in our body. The purpose of our sexuality is is to glorify God. I'm going to close this morning by drawing your attention to three verses just prior to our passage. Look at verse 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The first, I want to end with two points. The first is judgment. Friends, we cannot get around what the Bible says here and other places. That for those who have adopted immoral lifestyles that go contrary to God's word, there is certain judgment that is promised. He says it will not inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is, a, is an inheritance given to believers that they will one day receive. It's kept in heaven for us, Paul says in, other, in another place. But those who live in these sins unrepentantly will not receive this inheritance. And so what Paul is saying is that those who adopt these lifestyles and are defined by these sins are not Christians. There is no such thing as a Christian adulterer, a Christian idolater, a Christian homosexual. Because these titles in and of themselves, in a definitional sort of way, are self-contradictory. Now, let me be clear. Christians can and do struggle with these kinds of sins. 
There's no temptation given, you know, no temptation that we've faced that is not common to man. But there's a difference between struggling with them and being dominated by them. There's a difference between being characterized by them or repenting of them. Christians who struggle with these sins and any sin will be characterized by striving to put them to death in the Spirit's power and not giving in to them time and time again. So the first word we need to be clear on is that of judgment. Those who will not inherit the kingdom of God will be cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. While following sexual passions may look like the good life now, it will end in destruction. Paul says, he even prefaces it with, do not be deceived. It looks like the good life. But we need to not be deceived. It's not. God will not be mocked. He will have the final say. That leads me to the final word this morning. And that is hope. The final word I want to leave you with is hope. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, this is the hope that stands for each and every one of us. That yes, there can be great sin that has defined us, but it can be a part of our past. It can be a part of our history, not a part of our future. We can say such were us, such were some of us, but not anymore. The point is that there's been change, there's been transformation. And friends, the triune God is about the work of transforming broken people. The gospel of Jesus Christ breaks into this world so that those of us with great sin upon our record can find forgiveness and be washed completely, be sanctified, be justified, may be made right before our holy God that we might walk in holiness and cleanliness and forgiveness. For all who struggle with sin, maybe you're here this morning and there's a burden of guilt upon your back because you know you have been given into the flesh, you have not been living according to God's standard. I give you this message of hope that there is forgiveness offered to you if you would come to Jesus and come to the light. Forgiveness is found. You can be justified and washed and sanctified. Don't continue to carry that burden. The gospel was given to you to find freedom. Find that freedom in Jesus this morning. And for those of you that may be confused, conflicted, struggling with feelings and, and, and things that may be going on, you're not sure what's going on inside of you, I encourage you to talk to somebody. If you're young, talk to your parents. Talk to your leader in 128. Talk to somebody. I invite you to talk to me. We want to show you with love and compassion how there can be wholeness and peace found through Jesus so that we can live lives that bring glory to him and that our history can be wiped away and we can find ourselves complete in him. Friends, the gospel is the good news that we need to hear this morning. That we can find cleanliness, we can find sanctification, we can find justification in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Amen? Amen. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word that reminds us of your standard. And Father, it is a high standard. It's a pure standard. It's a holy standard. And we all fall short. But we give you praise that you have sent your son into this world to take on flesh, 
so that we as bodies and souls may be redeemed completely. And I pray, Father, that you would please give us freedom from our sin, that we might live as a redeemed community, fleeing sexual immorality, that we might live lives that represent Jesus and glorify you in our sexuality. We ask for your spirit to help us do this. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Friends, go in peace in the love of Christ. God be with you.